We pray also too, Father God, for our, our country's leadership, Lord. Give them wisdom. Give them insight and help them to hear and to listen to what you have for them. We pray also too, Lord, for Kay and her family, uh, Kay Bouchane, and the loss of her brother this past week. We pray for um, them. We pray also for the Wonka family as Frank went on to be with the Lord uh, this past week. We just praise you, Lord, for the hope that we have in Jesus. And we pray also for the Brown family, for uh, Chris and Marcia and the loss of their son, Lord. We just pray that you'll shower them with your comfort and strength as they walk through these roads that are so difficult and so grief and overwhelming. I pray also, too, for Lillian and her doctor's appointment this week that she'll be with her. And also, too, for Nathan Rexbury, whose husband of my best friend is in a medical-induced coma because of brain swelling and septus. We just pray, Father God, that um, you bring healing to him and the family. You also pray for Lucille and for Kay and her health, and also, too, for Mary and for um, Joyce. We pray also for Howard. We pray also, too, Lord, for um, those who are going through difficult times in their marriages right now, that you bring healing, that you give them the wisdom that they need to bring that healing, and that they truly will have you as the leader of their homes. We pray also, too, um, Father, um, for our church and for the many decisions that will be coming up. Give us wisdom to know what we need to do, whether to stay in our denomination or to go to another denomination. I just pray for wisdom in that. We pray also, too, Father God, um, for those who we know that are struggling in addiction. I think of a fellow by the name of Jimmy and for Ryan and for Jordan and for David and for Eric and for Ricky, all these that are battling, and also Mitch, uh, and who's also going through cancer uh, treatments right now. I just pray for all of them as they battle. And Father, if we think of others that we have on our minds, as we pray to you, Lord, with their names, Lord, you know what the situation here is our prayer. Thank you, Lord, for spreading your ear out and hearing our prayers. And now, Father, we pray for your word that, Lord, you will speak to each one of our hearts in an area that we need edification or a place where we need to correct or a place that we need just some wisdom in. We know your word has that and can do that. And we ask you now, Jesus, help us to listen and send your Holy Spirit to provide this. In your name we pray. Amen. When I was a young man, I had an Uncle Bob, and still do, uh, although he's, I think he's close to 90 now, and he has Alzheimer's. But Bob was the youngest of my mother's siblings, and he was great. And I remember he was in college, and uh, after college, uh, he went on, he used to live with his wife above my mother, grandmother and grandfather's house, and they had a dog, and then when the dog, when the, their baby came, the dog had to go. And, um, but he, I remember him graduating, getting his first job with uh, 
Grumman out on Long Island. And from there, he was only there a few years and then wound up with Motorola because he was an electrical engineer. And then wound up with Intel, uh, which is the computer chip manufacturers for about 35 years. In fact, um, I, I know he'll be embarrassed if he hears this, but he bought the land here that we are on today with our church because of how well he did in his business and his work with Intel. But one of the things that um, he shared with me one day as we were sitting around at a, a family function, and he was saying how much he had to keep up and how their company, Intel, had to stay out ahead on the cutting edge in front of everybody else because what happens with them, they knew as uh, both as, uh, uh, he was a salesman at the time, uh, selling also um, microprocessors and boards for computers. He said that we know that we have a six month to a year life of our chip. Because he says what happens is as soon as our chip gets out on the market in the computer market, the com their competitors who buy them pull the computer apart and then they figure out what they did with their processing and their chip and then they reproduce them and send them to Taiwan and they produce them for a lot less and then they can sell these cheap computers on the market. And he said, so we are under the gun constantly to keep on new developments, new ways of the board and the chip and all that. And I was thinking about that because one of the things that we have today is the same thing going on in John's epistle today. John is trying to stay ahead of the eight ball. There are people who are trying to come into the church and take over the church, and they're supplying similar um, words and this is what cults do. They'll take a word in Christianity and they'll reinvent the definition. And you think you're buying into Christianity when in all actuality it's not Christianity. It's a diff totally different form. And what they do is they reproduce it so that it sounds like and then they come in and take over the church. Well, John was the one who fought against us. God had chosen John to be the fighter of the truth of God. And this is what this, these uh, this epistles are about. They're about fighting the truth for the truth of God and who Jesus Christ really was. And, he, and what John was, he wrote at the end of his career this epistle. In fact, they believe that John wrote this epistle after he wrote Revelation. And it was about 90-95 when he wrote it. And what we find here is that uh, John was time for, of confusion in the church, of compromise. People were following all different ways of, 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 of talk. And he wanted people to know the truth. He wanted people to know about Jesus Christ. And, the, and they wanted to know, teach them about love. And he also wanted them to be obedient to the word, but also to have the assurance that they were truly saved. Because some of them question that. And the way he addresses the congregation is three words he uses. Two of them mean for a child. And one Greek word means that you're a little child, about four or five euros. The other one is that you're infants. And then the third one is that you're the beloved, that you are loved. And it's one of the shortest epistles in the New Testament. And what happens is John was on the inner circle of Jesus. You know, he had his 12 disciples. But there were three that were the closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. 
And he experienced some pretty miraculous things that the other disciples didn't even experience. For instance, Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead and transformed. Or the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain with Moses and Elijah. That, remember Thomas? He said, I mean, Peter said, come on, let's build up these tabernacles so we can remember this and keep them here. And then also in the garden. John was pulled aside with Peter and James, and they were off to the side when Jesus was praying in the garden. And John had this unique privilege to be held responsible for a very important thing at the end of Jesus' life. If you remember when Jesus went on the cross, this is how much he trusted John. Jesus was on the cross, and he says to John, John, take care of my mother. That was his responsibility. And John and James also, though, and he oftentimes called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, some people will say, well, he's kind of bragging. No, that wasn't a brag. That was saying Jesus really loved me more than other disciples because I was a bigger mess up than even Peter because he had quite a temper. I meant he would have worked for the Taliban really, really well because if you remember, they're on their way to Jerusalem. And as they're going through Samaria, people are giving Jesus a lot of baloney. And John turns to Jesus, and John was known as the son, John and James were known as the son of Bonerges, which means is translated sons of thunder. They had pretty good tempers. And he says to Jesus, Jesus, do you want us to call fire down on this place and just wipe it out? That's the way he was. And he understood that Jesus had to have a special love for him and how he changed from this guy who went off like nothing in his temper to now he's called at the end the beloved disciple or the, the, the uh, loved disciple. And what we find with this apostle, he's really known as the apostle of love. Even though he had that in his background, Jesus forgave him and changed him and made him new. And he became the apostle of love. And what we find in the early history of the church, um, there were times that um, in the end of his life, um, you know, he was carried by some of the apostles and he would speak and, and people would come from miles to come and see him. And finally, uh, they would put him down, and these thousands of people would come to hear what John had to say. And he would say not a 30-minute sermon or a 60-minute sermon like Pastor Dave can ramble on sometime, but he says just a few words. He says, my little children love one another. And, and one of the times, one of the persons who was carrying him got a little disgruntled and said, that it? And John says to him, if that's all they do, that's enough. That love is so hard to do. And so here we have it. The church. Paul sees the church as the church, a body of fellowship. John sees it as a family. And we see that in John's writings. And the outline of this book is hard to outline because John circles around truths and he comes back to them and basically uses circular argument. And even fact, the way this starts out, some thought that it was letter, maybe now they're thinking maybe not it wasn't letter because he doesn't do the letter style 
that was in the day. And so what we have here is John defending the deity of Jesus Christ and also the humanity of Jesus Christ. In John, his gospel, they feel that if you look at the gospel, the number one taker of all the space in the New Testament is Luke. Luke wrote the most. Between Luke and the book of Acts, he wrote the most. And then second was Paul. But the third was John. He took up most of the third position on the space. About 20% of the New Testament were taken up by John. And look at what he says right off the bat. And he's dealing with these Gnostics, people who say they were in the know and say that Jesus Christ was not truly God or was only God for a certain time or he couldn't have been God because this earthly bodies that we have are sinful and they're not right. And so here's what John says. He says, what was from the beginning? The beginning first he does is he narrows out that Jesus Christ is eternal. And everything he does and everything he's about is eternal. There's no changing his words. There's no reinventing him. Jesus Christ, everything he did was the eternal word. It was the logos. And he's writing these people who are Gnostics, especially, and people around him that are following. And the logos was the one that created the earth. Logos was the one God who made everything happen. He's looking in Romans chapter eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. He's talking about Jesus Christ. God created this world through Jesus Christ. We see him already in the book of Genesis when the Bible says that God said, let us create man, let us create man. And in Colossians chapter 1, where we see, For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Everything came through Jesus Christ, who was the Word. And one of the sad parts about it is today, these Gnostics, who were here present then, are in our generation today. Some are in the church. Some are in our world. Who are changing the words and the definitions that God has put together. Some parents see this in their schools. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, the Bible says, God created man in his own image, and the image he created them, he created them male and female. And yet now we are living in the society that it's this wokeness and the critical race theory that is infiltrated into the school districts and are trying to teach a different thing. I was reading this past week that Megyn Kelly, you know, she used to be on Fox TV. Megyn Kelly was sitting down with her son one day. Now she sends her son to a private school in the New York City area, and I think I know which one it is. And they've gone woke. And she was sitting down and they didn't tell the parents. In fact, they don't even want the parents to see even when they're home from school and doing work on their tablets, they're not to watch, the parents aren't to watch them. But one of the things that happened was as she was sitting at the table one day talking to her son as she's paying $60,000 to this kid to go to private school uh, during the year. She finds out that her son tells her that when they go to school at least once or twice a week, they're asked, are you sure that you're a boy? Are you kidding me? And then a day or two later, are you still sure that you're a boy? 
You hear that? They're changing. They're forcing the woke movement, the critical race theory on these little children and molding their minds. And she talks about it's confusing the kids and it's 100% abusive and changing what God says is that he made them male and female and giving them suggestions in their minds that maybe they're a different gender and they don't know it. And we as Christians, parents, grandparents, we need to be awake, not woke, wake to this going on. And we need to stand against it and to look at the curriculums that are going on today in the school districts that are being taught against the will of God and his creation itself. And then this past week, I was with a friend of mine who's reading a book he picked up. He thought it was about God, and it was, but the problem was it was by Bishop Spong, who I used to know, and he's an Episcopalian bishop in New Jersey, and he talks about how he doesn't believe in the virgin birth, how he doesn't believe in the resurrection, and that he claims to be a Christian, Christian teacher. Now, where's the Christianity? There's no Christianity in that, not the truths of the word of God. And you see, this is what John comes to us. And he comes speaking to us. And there's also other theologians out there today. Even in one in the evangelical seminary. That talks about the... It just boggles my mind. That God is not sovereign. He doesn't know the end from the beginning like the scriptures say. But that God is learning along with us. And he's surprised as we are when things happen in the world. That's not the God of the Bible. But this is what is being taught in seminaries. Not that he, Jesus Christ, is eternal. His word is eternal. You cannot change it. No matter how many committees you pull together, no matter what the world says, God's word is eternal and will not change. And God has judgment for that. And you see, this is what was going on in John's day. It's nothing new under the sun. And we see that he is not only eternal, but he was incarnate. Now, these Gnostics didn't believe that Jesus was God. Some of them didn't. There's all different offshoots of the Gnostics. But what they believed in, and John says to us, he was manifest to us. We saw him. Look what he says. What we have heard, we heard Jesus speak. We have seen him with our eyes. We have looked at him and touched him with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifest. We saw him and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you that there's eternal life, which was in the father and was manifest to us. And it was through Jesus Christ. Now you see this false teaching the Gnostics had. There were many different groups and that they denied that Jesus had even come in the body. Some of them felt that Jesus was a phantom, that he was some kind of extraterrestrial material. I was reading this and I was, it's, it, I wanted to cry, but I'm cracking up, that when they pushed Jesus, their hand went through him. That when he walked down the beach, he didn't leave footprints in the sand. That's what they thought he was. 
Docetism, which is a branch of it, believes that he was not human, but he was a fantasy or a celestial substance and that he really didn't suffer. That was the docetus. It means two different parts of his being. The Corinthians, they believed that God was supreme of the world, but there was a bad God who created the world because it was material as sinful. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that creation was good and it was beautiful and that it's under the curse of sin. But yet, God created it good. These fellows felt that Jesus only showed up to Christ, the God being, only showed up at his baptism, and then he left just before his resurrection, and that Jesus never suffered on the cross. And then there was the Ebonites who came along, another form of Gnosticism, and they said <clears throat> he was not born of a virgin Mary, and that he was just a mere man of, from Mary and Joseph. So you got all this going on. Now, why is this so important that Jesus is fully man and fully God? Well, there's several reasons. For one, <clears throat> there are people who kid themselves. And I know that there are Gnostics in their thinking because they believe <clears throat> they can have the Saturday night sinner <clears throat> and the Sunday morning saint. I used to <clears throat> hang out some of these guys. And they'd go out and act like the devil on Saturday night. But on Sunday morning, they'd go to church and they felt everything was forgiven. And they continued to do that. Well, John Guts says, no, 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 no. That's not true faith and having an intimate relationship with Jesus. That's, you're denying the faith. And they like that separation that, you know. I can do whatever I want because my body's sinful. And we can even blame God for it because that's the way he created me. Or, and then I can live this life and I've got a pure spirit. Well, that's a denial of the faith here. Another good thing, the reason we have a good thing that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, it tells us in the Bible in Hebrews chapter 4. And that is, we do not have a high priest, which is Jesus Christ, who cannot sympathize with us, with our weaknesses, and we all stumble and we fall and we sin, but we have one who was tempted in every way and yet was sinless. He knows how to fight the sin and temptation in our lives. And he overcame them all. And we should go to him, not only for his insight, but even so more for his power to conquer the sin in our life. You look at Jesus. As soon as he was baptized, he's out in the wilderness. And for 40 days, he was tempted by Satan. Go ahead, Jesus. 40 days, you're pretty hungry. Why don't you change those rocks into bread? First, he attacks Jesus for his survival. Then again, he comes along to Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, if God is going to protect you, throw yourself off the temple. If he's supposedly promised to protect you, and Jesus says, You don't tempt the Lord their God. What about Scripture? And then again, Satan comes on to Jesus and says, look, you can have all the power in the world. It's just bowed down to me. And Jesus said, no. He conquered. Some of the people in Washington need to hear that. They need to go to Jesus rather than be hung, power hungry and trying to destroy everybody around them. But they should listen to God's word. 
And we see Jesus also in his earthly life. How many friends wind up drawing us into temptation? Tried to pull him off his path of doing the Lord's will by going to the cross. What does Peter do? Peter says, Lord, we're not going to let you. We're going to fight to the death. And Jesus sees it for what it is. And he rips Peter up and he says, get to behind me, Satan. He knew Satan was using his words to try to get Jesus off the path. And then again, Jesus in his own turmoil inside. The struggle that he was having inside of his own heart. Being tempted in the garden not to go to the cross. And how he wrestled with that and how he overcame that. And said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. He overcame it. And that's why it's so important for Christ to be human. 100% human. Because the battles that you and I go through, he's been there. And he can give you victory over it. He can give you power over it. Because he's also God. And so therefore, those battles within... Being a true Christian filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can get that power to overcome our temptations. But you know as well as I do, sometimes there's counterfeits. There's some people who want to live and look like they're Christians or maybe even struggle in their Christian walk. And they like to seem to think that they're good Christians. And yet... They miss it. You think about it. Good Christians who just before they're married or while they're engaged, they'll shack up to just make sure that it's going to be okay, our relationship. When the Bible says you go by faith and not by shacking up before you get married, the percentages are so high of Christians doing that. And they're not trusting Christ. How many Christians do you know that struggle, men especially, with pornography? A woman caught her husband the other day. I had this experience with a friend of, that I was trying to help out with their marriage. And that person said she caught her husband with pornography. He said, oh, it's nothing. I was just looking. Okay. He says, it's no big deal. Really? What did Jesus say in his Sermon on the Mount? He said, if you look upon a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Oh, I guess that rules that one out, doesn't it? Or how many of us have at times blown up, blow out our tempers, and we may say something about somebody who just cut us off? Or say something to somebody that we're not happy with. And our temper gets the best of us. And I've heard people say, oh, well, that's just who I am. Oh, that's my old sinful nature coming out. And Jesus says, But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, rock on, empty-headed lumskull, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says fool shall be guilty enough to go to the fiery hell. Now we know Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive us and give us new life. 
and that we can be assured. But we know we struggle. As Jesus pointed out in the Sermon on it, lust and anger, worry, greed, you name it, it's in the book. And we know we need Christ's forgiveness and cleansing, and we need his help to change. And that's why it's so important that Christ was not only human and knows what we went through and conquered it, but that he also has the power to conquer it, and he gives us the ability to conquer those sins too. And see, that's why he could be the divine substitute for our sins and pay for our sins. Because you see, God's divine justice has to have all those sins paid for in order to be a just and holy God. And the only way they can be done is satisfied by the perfection of a human being and the power of Christ to conquer is in Jesus Christ. And that's how he saves us. He becomes the perfect satisfaction, the perfect sacrifice for us. That's why it's so special to be his child. Because we know we fail every day. And John wants people to know this truth, that he wasn't some phantom. He's not some aberration. He was fully man and fully God. And the reason why John says it at the end of this book He says, the reason is so that you can say, and I can say, when people say, are you saved? We don't say, well, I think so. I hope so. John says that you will know that you're saved and that Christ has forgiven you, fully divine, fully human, and that we trust in him alone for our salvation, not our works, not all the goodness we've done, just in him alone. Because when we trust in anything else, we're grabbing onto something that is nothing and will never save us. I was reading about back at the turn of the century. There was a guy that continued to perform and he was known as the human fly. He would go to cities and people were in awe. And you can even see this on um, some of the... Uh, Things that are on the, the, our uh, phones and, and on our computers, there are guys who act like they're super fly. And they can scale buildings like crazy. And what this guy did is one day he came to this town. They had this big building. He said, I can scale it. And so everybody paid their money and he tried to scale. And as he was going up, he thought he was grabbing on to a piece of mortar. And instead, he grabbed and he fell backwards because the thing he grabbed was not mortar. He fell to his death. And when they called the sheriff to come and investigate, they found in his hand a spider web rather than a piece of mortar. And he fell backwards and wound up crushing his skull. And you see, when we trust in anything else than Jesus Christ... Our hope is in a spider web or a phantom that looks like something solid that does not. And that's why it's so important that Jesus died as not only human, but divine. Christianity right now, mainline Protestantism and Christianity is losing its voice in America today. Not in other, not other worlds. Church is growing in other worlds, other parts of the world. But in America, it's losing its power. 
And it's being removed because people don't trust Christianity anymore. We've gone after trying to supply so many different things to bring people in rather than trusting to keeping to the truth. And we've eliminated the truth bit by bit. And people don't trust the church today. And they look at us and when we say we have the truth, they look like, yeah, there's no such thing as truth. Because they're brought into relativity. And what we need to do is get back to the truth. And convince the hearts of young men and women that Christ died for them. That he was born dual nature of, of man and God so that he could represent us and take away our sins. And he gives us eternal life. And that's where John then says that we understand that he's eternal. That he's incarnate. And then that we have fellowship with him. This doesn't happen, and we in the church are just not a club. We're not a group of people that are just high, and we're having a good time, and we're a coffee clutch. No, we have something different in our fellowship. And that is that we have an internal connection through the Holy Spirit, that we are together as one, and that we have this one who is the life who's the word of life, who was touched and seen. And he lives in our heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. And living in our hearts, he changes us. And we have a totally different connection. Not only are we connected outwardly, but inwardly we have a different thing that's running all of our hearts. And that's why we're called a family. And this is why John wants to speak about it as a fellowship or a family. I can say that I know Aaron Judge watch his statistics on TV, I watch him play baseball, but I don't know him personally. But we do all, if we believe in Jesus Christ, know Christ personally in our hearts and that we know Christ and his power that changes our hearts. And because of that, we have this thing that the Bible calls koinonia or fellowship. It's this intimate affection and connection by the Holy Spirit inside of us for each other. And that's why when Bill Gaither wrote that beautiful song, we all have a heartache, we all share the pain. Because we're a family, we're a family so dear. I've been washed by the fountain, cleansed by the blood. This is us. And in our hearts, we make so much a difference than just being friends. It's a deep inside fellowship. It's a fellowship with Christ every day that we share with him and we can go to him and we can share our burdens, we can pray to him, we can walk with him every day in his presence. But then we also have this intimacy that we have with each other and this fellowship with the Father who knows us so well and understands us so deeply. And that it's not just the vocabulary that we speak. It's an internal connection that cannot be taken away or removed. Because we're part of what's called the divine nature of Jesus. That's what makes us so different. And the world is so lonely. And we as Christians should have that loneliness healed. Because we have this intimacy with him. I have a friend that's a physical therapist in a major city in the Midwest here. And he says, it's amazing to me that the people who still kind of keep on coming, even though their injury is fixed, 
And we've got them walking. They still want to come. He says, it's because they're so lonely. They don't have anybody to talk to. And here the Bible says to us, we have this intimacy with Jesus Christ and our fellowship with him that can build inside us and change us radically through his word and through the spirit. And that we can have this intimacy with our people who know him. And there's a connection. I've had it where I felt a connection more with guys that I have played with or worked with than a person who can't even speak my language because I know they know the Jesus. And there's this intimacy that I sense and feel with them. And it's beautiful. And it's powerful. And that's what John wants us to understand. That, that we have this deep-seated relationship with God the Father and Jesus Christ and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he says, which is so interesting, he says, it completes our joy. Not happiness. We're talking about this deep inner secret inside of our heart. That knowing him brings us this joy. This wonderful peace in our hearts. It comes through knowing him. And the salvation that he brings to us. It's a joy that we know in our hearts that gives us the peace. And that's why we can connect with our brothers and sisters and have a deeper bond. The other day, when I heard of Brady, the Brown's son, dying, I had to pull my car over because I was crying. And then when I heard when Frank died, I cried again because these, these folks are dear to our hearts. We love them. And there's a connection we have inside of our hearts. That's a horizontal love that comes from God, the vertical. And in it, we find this peace and joy that we know that even though we're not going to see them for a while, we're going to see them again. And that they're not going to be struggling or dealing with the things of this life anymore. And they're going to be free of it. And they're going to be at peace. Oh, to sometimes I'd go into that house of Frank's and see him struggling breathing. To know that he's got new lungs now and he's free to run around in heaven again. And the peace that it brings because I have the joy of our salvation that Christ has given to us. Yes, we grieve, we cry. And it says here, those who sow in tears shall reap joyful shouting. We do cry because we miss them here, but it's only a short time. And then we're gonna experience seeing them again different, better than they ever were. That's how great it is. Peter says this, though you have not seen Christ. You love him. And though not seeing him now, you believe and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As we go along in this life, we should be the most joyful people on the earth because as we progress, we see the changes God is doing in our life and we're excited for that time when finally he comes and calls us home. 
And we can be with him again forever. And that we don't have any of the hassles of this life anymore. I love this verse. And this, I, 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 this verse caught me on, the, on a treadmill. And I had to memorize this verse. You have made known to me the path of life. He does that. This is how intimately Jesus is to us. He, he shows us the path. Now we've got to take it. And to realize that we're not going to have to go the path alone. But we're with his alongside of us and inside of us. And in that presence with him, there's this joy. That the things of this life don't rattle us like the world. And that in his right hand, he continues to give us pleasures in this life. And joys. And the fullness of joy will finally come when we leave this earth. And we'll be in joy of Christ forever. And when we have that joy, we're not afraid. In fact, faith picks up when we experience the joy of Christ in our lives. In fact, we become more stronger. We become having more courage. We have faith. We got more hope than anybody else in the world. We have love and we're not afraid to love other people. And that we can celebrate in Jesus. Even the tragedies of our life. By the Holy Spirit. We've all been talking about 9-11. 20 years ago. And I was reading about Todd Beamer who was one of the victims of 9-11. He was a graduate from Wheaton College and he trusted Jesus Christ as a young man in the Lord. And him and his wife were growing in the Lord. And uh, Lisa, when they met at Wheaton College and they got married. And that fateful day over Pennsylvania, when he was on that plane, and many have heard those words very popularized of what he said. The dispatcher, who has now become very good friends with Lisa, shared with her what was going on in the, pot, in, in the plane as they realized they were hijacked. And the dispatcher said that Todd led the people in that plane in the Lord's Prayer. And then he quoted the 23rd Psalm. And then she said, I heard his last words. Are you ready? Okay, let's roll. As they went towards that cockpit and they overcame it. And the plane went down in that field in Pennsylvania, preventing that plane either from going to the White House or to the Congress. They're not sure which way it was aimed at. But they prevented that, and they lost their lives. And what they did, 20 years now later, There's a building at Wheaton College 
with Todd's name on it. And all three of his boys, Lisa at the time was pregnant with her one child, and there were two other boys that they already had. And they made a mural in the lobby of this building. And it's Todd's image, his back. And two little boys holding hands with their dad, heading in and saying, let's roll. And that's the way it is for us. We need to roll because our society continues like John. We need to fight. We need to fight for the truth because not only is the world in peril, but so are our children and our grandchildren. And there are people who are trying to rip the truth away and destroy them. And we're not going to let them do that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, right now, we come to you, Lord, and we know that there's a battle raging for the hearts of men and women, children, babies. And we don't want that to win. We want your righteousness to win. And we know that you win in the end. But we want to be faithful in the battle and to be able to present the truth as it was preached and shared by your son, Jesus Christ. That you were fully God, fully man. Came to this earth to die for men's sin and to free us from the bondage of sin. And to give us victory in the temptations of life. And that people can have the abundant joy that you promise into our hearts. And that we can be free and not fearful, but full of courage because of faith in you. And I pray, Jesus, today that that's the way we can leave here today, fighting the good fight. And I pray for a blessing on this congregation, the people that they meet, the people that they know that struggle, that don't know you, Lord, that they can be strong ambassadors for you. And that we can also raise our voices up to prevent these teachings that are demonic in our world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please rise and receive the benediction, and then we'll sing our closing song. And now go in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the power of the Holy Spirit infect your lives to have victory in Christ every day and to share his joy. Amen.